It's the Wonky Show. Uh, Wokery is in the news again. We'll work out whether to worry about the latest salvos in the culture wars. Uh, there's new Leo data out. What does that tell us? And OFS is clamping down on unmerited attainment. It's all coming up. If that is the direction of travel, just like you know, being in, a, in an office space, we have to design really inclusive cultures that support students, not just in the into the, the workplace, but actually through that progression. And I think- Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and up in space, man, with this week's HG developments, as usual, three terrific guests. Uh, in tooting, Chris Shelley is Director of Student and Academic Services at the University of Greenwich. Chris, your highlight of the week, please. Oh, our student-led teaching awards last week, Jim, always a highlight of the year, especially now we can hold them face-to-face. Great to see our staff recognised by, by our students for the positive impact they have on their experience. Lovely. And in glorious Woking, Claire Adams is Head of Education Strategy at Handshake. Claire, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, hello. Also, um, in anticipation of this question, I've been waiting for something to top Eurovision all week, um, and in particular the, the flute solo of the Ukrainian entry, but uh, nothing has. Uh, so I'm going with Eurovision. Brilliant. Sorry. And uh, I, I've obviously very much agree with you. And uh, I know, you know if Twitter uh, is to believe uh, you were there and having a fabulous I, time. I, I was indeed. Uh, and somewhere in the southwest, David Kernahan is Wonky's associate editor. DK, your highlight of the week, please. Well, this will be first week as Wonky's acting editor. And my highlight of the week is realising just how much I miss Debbie McVitie. <laughs> yes, excellent. Uh, so we start this week with Wokery. Advance HE was in the news at the weekend over the Race Equality Charter, uh, and NUS has been no platformed, Chris. Yes, indeed, yeah. Advance HE running a voluntary racial equality charter scheme for the university sector is probably not usually likely to be the top billing item on the, the wonky podcast. Um, seems pretty, you know, sensible thing for them to do, really. But uh, it's it's come to the top of this running order because of the reaction uh, in the, the right-wing press and amongst uh, some Tory backbenchers who have uh, have called it uh, wokery, egreg- the most egregious wokery, um, and charging lucrative membership fees, even though the whole scheme is, is entirely voluntary um, and really it's just an opportunity for the right wing press and, and some elements of uh, the Conservative Party to, to weigh in with their general views on higher education and how uh, you know we're getting all of this stuff wrong it's brainless woke nonsense apparently according to one uh, quoted source uh, but in mixed with all this is um, the government themselves taking a stance uh, against racism or against anti-Semitism with uh, at least with, with uh, removing NUS's seat at the table and um, sanctioning them for uh, not taking anti-Semitism seriously, um, but also the Commons Women in Equalities Committee has been hearing about racial harassment and discrimination in, in higher education and uh, some very worrying uh, statements coming out of there, not least uh, Nicola Rollock of, of uh, King's College London saying that there are elements of the government who actually disparage action on racial harassment in HE. So some uh, some mixed messages coming uh, really from uh, from the government and from the, from the press around uh, how wrong or right we are getting this or not getting this within the sector. Um, Alison Johns has given a, you know, a very robust defence of Advance HE's position on the wonky uh, site this week. Um, and there's, there's no doubt lots more to be, to be written and, re- uh, and read about these various issues in the coming weeks. 
DK, there's a, the, 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 I mean, it does feel like mixed messages, but there is a thread, isn't there, which is a, a kind of ideological opposition to critical theory, which underpins lots of the newspaper stories about Stonewall and its charters, but also this, you know, this idea of, you know, opposing critical race theory and, you know, there being a, a swell of backbenchers that are, are kind of opposed to this, 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 this idea, which to some extent is an opposition imported from the US. It is very much something that we saw first in US. Uh, uh, politics, especially around the Trump campaign in 2016, and before then, the, I mean, even the Tea Party stuff. I mean, as I understand it, the right, the far right argument, I would say, because most sensible people on the right of the centre don't hold any track with this whatsoever, is that all of the framing of any action that we've taken on what we might call liberation or equalities actually paints. Uh, people who are currently in the uh, dominant position in most Western societies, so that would be a white middle class cishet men, um, as being somehow a, um, a victim in all this and needing to actively take on the guilt, the, culp- the um, culpability for the historic structures of um, inequality in which they benefit. Now, uh, there are some people who fit into those categories that are not equipped to take on that particular kind of guilt, that particular thinking. It's like, look, it is people like me who is, who are perpetuating this kind of inequality so that we need to, uh, we need the support of people like me to challenge it. So there's been loads of concerns. You look at the school stuff in the US, you look at the all the talk about critical race theory, which I guarantee nearly everybody who speaks those words has no idea what they mean and has never read anything that could even loosely be called critical race theory. It's the idea that um, we are somehow as white middle class um, people we are guilty. And that is what the right is reacting against, as I understand it. Yes, interesting stuff. And uh, actually, uh, David Richardson, the Vice Chancellor at uh, the University of East Anglia, uh, where I used to work a long time ago, uh, was reflecting on some of the opposition to critical race theory at the committee. Let's have a listen. So first of all, I've been very clear in that report, and I've been very clear to to, to, um, vice-chancellors that I have addressed, and I've addressed all of the UK's vice-chancellors, that there is ingrained institutional racism. Um, I'm not sure that that's accepted uh, uh, throughout uh, government, or that language is accepted throughout government, and it's certainly not accepted by some organisations outside of government. My my belief is it's true, and I actually, I'm not trying to suppress debate, on people who have a different view to that and have alternative explanations for degree awarding gaps. Um, My view is that we need to move on from that debate and actually uh, progress with with dismantling that institutional racism. There are some who try to explain um, uh, uh, degree awarding gaps between, say, black and white students on the basis of socioeconomic backgrounds and other factors, but we can cut the data in different ways and we know that we've actually closed the degree awarding gap uh, 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 for, for people from different socioeconomic backgrounds. So we can't cut our data in different ways. This is indicating to us that there are issues that we have to, we have to address. And, and, and so for those that perhaps uh, have suggested that I'm overstating this, I, 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 I really don't think I have. And I think I, my starting point is we have to accept that, not debate it, 
and then set about dismantling those, uh, th th those barriers that our students are experiencing and our staff in terms of that progression. Uh, and both, uh, you know, into universities. Now, Claire, I mean, th this is really interesting stuff, isn't it? Because lots of the focus here is on, you know, the public sector, what universities do, what's being done, or perhaps what government departments do, you know, what public money is being spent on. But actually, you know, I get the sense that a lot of this kind of agenda around equality with its underpinning theory and its charts and so on is being taken really seriously by employers. Yeah, definitely. We've seen, you know, huge, uh, huge steps forwards and commitments and employer side in relation to commitments to to EZI and this kind of narrative in in the, the the sort of right press is 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 really kind of scary in in many ways I think the the thing that really struck me reading the press coverage in those stories was was some of the language especially around the race equality charter piece um from Tory Backbenchers the kind of idea that it's a a sinister attempt to um, indoctrinate students, you know, turning places of, of light dominated um, it, by uh, dominated by darkness. And it feels like the language of war and it feels like it's really escalating, especially when you uh, consider the the positive impact that Advance HE is taking on the sector, but also that employers are, are trying to take forward as, as well in the, in the private sector as well. And, you know, as I was reading a lot of the press coverage, I think... The, the, it was Sam Friedman's words at um, uh, wonky access or areas last week that kept surfacing in my mind that was this is a this is a political issue and it is a, a political concern and it's only going to sort of continue to follow I, I, I fear the path that we've seen in, in the US and that's that's really concerning I think for employers for education and for students actually more than anything. Chris this is a really tricky one isn't it because it strikes me that when, you know, a kind of piece of kind of theory then gets converted into action, and in the end, that's what you want kind of academic theory to do, don't you? You want academic theory to actually impact people's lives and how organisations are run and so on. But when this particular kind of, you know, suite of academic theory is then being kind of, de you know, delivered in practice by, you know, organisations like universities, it, you, you suddenly get this sense from some people that you're not allowed to then disagree with that theory and I have I have a level of sympathy with that position don't you yeah I mean I think universities are places where uh, we want to debate and discover and you know challenge and and um, you know look at all all parts of an argument and uh, you know we're, we're dangerously straying into the freedom of speech bill potentially but um, uh, yeah absolutely I think you know whenever there is um, any kind of uh, you know discussion around turning theory into practice there, there has to be some um, nuance and, and some understanding of, of different points of view um, uh, but you know know you've got organizations like advanced he who are, who are just you know trying to help us all move forward you know trying to help push us on put the right training in place put support in place on on limited resources really and um uh you know i, I think you know there's a difference between um challenge uh, debate and uh you know identifying the best way forward together and um you know simply um demeaning something from from its you know its very very core with with base language like you know wokery <laughs> yeah it feels like kind of reverse cancel culture doesn't it dk this um this this, this nus thing uh is it is it significant or was it a kind of friday afternoon press stunt in the dfe office 
Um, the fact that we had Larissa Kennedy at the Women and Equalities um, Committee in the House of Commons representing the NUS and fielding questions from members of the Conservative Party suggests to me that the NUS is still a body that they want to talk to. It does feel like it was a really petty decision. Um, it's not like the NUS were um, actually actually wired into the heart of government anyway that they've always been i think um born with a slight level of uh sufferance in that you don't really know whether nus are going to uh sit down and in- engage intelligently and uh critically in uh policy development or run a massive demo and shout at everybody um either of which c- can happen depending on the nus regime of the time but I don't know how much difference this is going to make. It feels like a symbolism. It feels like um, um, Michelle Donald really wants to burnish her credentials on anti-Semitism and sees here an easy way to do this or, um, whilst also having a go at an organisation which pretty much nobody in the uh, Conservative Party certainly actually likes all that much. All of this stuff, all this culture war stuff, it feels to me like um, not just the current of history, but the current, re- the, uh, current of finance is actually against the government at this point. We've seen a massive explosion in what's called environmental sustainability and uh, governance or ESG as a criteria for accessing loans, uh, bonds, etc. Universities are really well placed to do this. They've been getting really good at this uh, kind of equality stuff, which is um, a central part of it. And they're going to keep doing that if they want to access um, money. Um, at the end of the day, the the um, culture wars are going to be um, actually won by the people who have got the money, the same as any other war. And at, at this point, all this um, equality, sustainability government stuff is linked to bankers' bonuses. So there we are. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, this is Mark Bennett from Fine University, and this week I wrote a piece for Wonky about using the REF for PhD students. Whatever we think of REF, we know it's a lot of work and it generates a lot of data. So let's think what else we can do with this. Well, unlike rankings, the REF does actually attempt to measure some of the things that matter to prospective PGR students. It looks at the outputs they might be involved in, the impact that might articulate the value of their research, and of course, the environment they might go on to work within. And all of this, because of peer review, is judged by the academics they want to work with and indeed have as their peers. I also think making the REF more available to PhD students is a real opportunity to help improve the visibility of PGR and ECR researchers in relation to REF itself, and perhaps get the focus back on the real goal of the exercise, ensuring the future of UK research. Now, next up, we have an interesting update to longitudinal educational outcomes data. DK, remind us what on earth that is. So this is um, longitudinal educational outcomes data. Leo is the stuff uh, that normally shows you salary differentials between uh, 
providers and courses. It's not terribly good at that for a number of reasons that we've gone across time and time and time again on the site. But it is interesting data for doing other stuff. And this latest um, update really helps us to do some of this other stuff. Because for the first time, we're getting information about the industry in which graduates are working and how that meshes with the place that they uh, are currently living, the place in which they studied and the subject they studies. So we can look at these kind of differentials and think, okay, what do graduates of a particular subject area actually end up uh, go and do? How much do they get paid? Um, would they get paid more if they went and did something else entirely or if they did the same thing but in London? Uh, the answer on the latter is usually less. Everybody apart from the manufacturing sector, all the money is in London, which is probably um, quite bad for the idea of leveling up. Um, we also see some of the student characteristic stuff, so we can look at um, ethnic disparities in uh, pay, which are far more visible in fund management than in higher education as an industry, say. And we can also look at the impact of prior attainment. So we can still see that prior attainment has a huge impact on a person's salary. And uh, that is also amplified by where they happen to live and what they happen to study. Uh, so there's all kinds of interesting little differentials going on in all of this. Uh, there's a huge article on the site with uh, tons of interactives. I would strongly urge people to go and have a, a play with it. It is incredibly fascinating data. Claire, what stood uh, what stood out for you in the in the data? I think yeah, I, I agree with DK. I think from my perspective, the kind of I think there's, there's three bits that are interesting. There's the region of study. Uh, region of, of current residents and that then combined with the the industry data is you know, is, is particularly interesting especially given the level up uh, leveling up agenda and there's there's clearly sort of huge potential for for regions to retain graduates but there were you know there were some real serious failures in the market i mean most people who've, who've chatted to me about a, a regional sme recruitment in the last few years would have heard me say this so i apologize but but there was a report released um, in 2012 by the the then uh, Department for Business Innovation and Skills, which was focused on graduate recruitment to to SMEs, not just regionally but but nationally. And I'm sure if the the wonky podcast had existed, then it would have it would have featured. And um, it identified three market failures. There was information failures on both sides, uh, employers and students, specifically on awareness and and perceived value. There was SME constraint, so the cost and resources associated with attracting, recruiting and, and retaining students and graduates. And I should say there's there's a huge amount of collaborative work going on you know, across the university sector at, at Teesside, at, at the RISE programme in Sheffield, um, DMU in Leicester, you know, to name just a few. But they can't support every SME or or micro business across the country like on their own um and the final the, the the final failure that was identified in that report 10 years ago was significant structural problems that 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 just connecting large numbers of uh, of diverse SMEs and 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 micro businesses kind of across the country with with even larger numbers of uh dispersed students and graduates and i think from my perspective, that's where technology and, and networks really have an impact and a huge potential. But 
But 10 years on, looking at leveling up, or the leveling up agenda, it's still more focused on the supply side of the market. And it to really deliver leveling up across the nation, there needs to be significant steps forward nationally, you know, in relation to those three market failures on both sides, supply and demand. And there needs to be better ways to 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 connect the two sides of the market more effectively. Otherwise I think we're just gonna be up against these challenges and, and barriers, you know, for years to come. And, and Claire, can I ask? So, so obviously, you know, one of the things that's been going on over the past few weeks is this uh, other aspect of this culture war around working from home. <laughs> and you know, I was listening to Radio Four thinking about this this morning because um, you know we've just recruited a new member of staff actually to work with me on the students' union stuff. And it may well be that three or four years ago we would have recruit we would have recruited someone to work in London. And, you know, we have not done that. This is someone that will be based in the Northeast because, you know, we are a fully remote team at Wonky and we're still going to meet once a month. And is that a trend? Is that, is that, are our businesses starting to be more flexible about where people can sort of be? And will there be, you know, impacts then on, you know, this stuff around geographical distribution of where graduates are? Definitely. So certainly the data that we're seeing um, from our network in the US and the UK is that there has definitely been an increase in remote opportunities being advertised. And I think that you know, we've said this all along since you know, over the last two years, that's got huge potential in relation to levelling up. I think the thing we have to be really conscious of, which goes back to some of the points DK was making around kind of um, different student demographics and how they sort of surface in this data is that if that is the direction of travel, just like you know, being in, a, in an office space, we have to design really inclusive cultures that support students, not just in the, into the, the workplace, but actually through that progression. And I think what's interesting in, in the data, the, sort of the 10-year data, is we see some of those barriers that students face when they first come into the, the workplace continuing over the 10 years. It, it varies by industry. And I think we've got to move away from this kind of go-to strategy around kind of delivering equitable outcomes that focuses on the individual and the individual being the one that sort of raises their hand if they're working remotely because they need help or they've missed something or building their confidence and their aspirations and it it has to be more of a uh, a top-down systematic kind of uh, approach because conscious or not the the implications of putting the onus on the individual is that those those students or or those people who are working remotely or have chosen to work remotely potentially if we go down that road are less motivated, less present, less have different aspirations. And so we have to be really careful, I think, about that because it does present um, a new challenge into how you design an inclusive working culture. And that's something we're you know, working through and I'm sure Wonky is as well um, at Handshake. Uh, well, I guess my concern around these, I mean, look, date, data is always really good. It's a good thing to be able to look at data and, and see trends and, and identify um, uh, anything that can help uh, prospective students make decisions about their future. I guess my, my, my worry about this kind of data is, um, it, does it start to close off options for potential students in their own mind, at least? Uh, you know, you want a student coming out of further education or whatever to, to think about applying for university, considering what their career options might be. And some of this data is actually quite worrying. You know, if you're a if you're a black female, seventeen year old who wants to go into construction, uh, this data says that you'll be alone. 
um, in in terms of you know there, there'd been no other black women in that in that industry. So I, I think you know the, the beauty of higher education is that that students enter it with an idea about where they want to go with their career um, and potentially a, a quite clearly mapped out um, plan, especially if they're studying a you know a, a professional program, but. The beauty of higher education is it, it takes you in many different directions and you, you should feel that you can land where you want to and where you're most comfortable and, and break into some industries that potentially aren't um, necessarily open to, to people from your demographic at the moment. And actually, I, I worry that, that some of this data could, you know, if, if prospective students were looking at it or even current students, put them off entering into a, a you know, a, a specific industry or a specific role um, because, they, the, it, it, you know, the data says that it's not for them. Uh, so um, yeah, I think it's 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 it really interesting, and I can read the article on Wonky, and, and I can find myself slipping into DK's brain just with the, the, the various um, you know machinations that you oh, can use. Oh, don't the, come the, in! The don't come in! It's a scary, dark place. <laughs> DK, um, I've got I, I've got a kind of macro question for you about the data. I, I, I mean, obviously, if um, here in Watford, my office used to be in the in St Albans, and I. You know, I mean, it didn't, but if, if that was the case and I'm now working from home three days a week because it's easier in terms of childcare and so on, that doesn't seem to me to disrupt any of the regional data. But, but if we increasingly have got graduates working in industries that don't depend on a physical location because they're not manufacturing or whatever, or even in roles in manufacturing industry where the role doesn't depend on a physical location, doesn't it start to skew all the data? I mean, where, where do you anchor that? Where do you anchor the salary? Where do you anchor the economic contribution? Do you anchor it in, you know, where the business is notionally based? Do you anchor it where the salary is being spent? Don't we have to kind of think really hard about what we mean by where each of the kind of economic activity aspects are in in this kind of really complicated world? Route? Um, I feel like I mean, in um, Leo, they're looking at the place that the graduate is currently residing so they're not actually really getting into any of this kind of uh fancy split stuff if you're living in teesside working in leeds whatever they don't cover that um uh so just by looking at residents uh you can think okay most graduates that live in a big region of england are going to work in that same um region of england there's not very many people that are daft enough to live in say exeter but actually nominally work in london and stuff like that there's a few and i mean god bless them but it's it's a hard hard job i think in the sense of the leveling up aspect if it is possible to do uh better paid jobs remotely if it's possible to do graduate jobs remotely if every single media company every single political company every single think tank doesn't actually have to be based in london there might be some um uplift in salaries in other regions and that would start to show by i mean dare we say it a, um a leveling up of this data L- um listeners might have noticed with the appointment of livy and james co alongside myself we're gradually becoming what i can only describe as um a northeast mafia um and it was with this lens that i read a report from uh public first today which was commissioned by the university of teesside this looks at the local impact in terms of Middlesbrough, Stockton, all the rest of the conurbation of Teesside, um, of the university. Um, it generally found that, um, local residents were very proud to have a local university. It's the kind of place that nearly everybody they talked to 
Um, they could imagine going, they could imagine studying there, they knew somebody that studied there. Uh, what hadn't quite come across as well was the impact the university made in terms of its research and its support for business. But I mean, when it was explained to them, people in the focus group started to think that this indeed was a good thing and was another aspect that the university needed to talk actually more about. Uh, so it was kind of very positive news for Canada's civic agenda for the work that universities like Teesside are doing in local deprived areas. The one thing in the focus group that people didn't actually understand was the idea of leveling up. But, you know, it was, um, it's an, um, an, a nice report. I would recommend that you took a look and especially have a look at the raw comments from the focus groups in the annex which are absolutely spectacular great stuff and of course we'll put the link to that in the show notes now all this season we're working with the association of university administrators to bring you dispatches from the desks of hard-working he professionals around the country uh, this week we caught up with thea gibbs who told us about navigating organizational structures and power dynamics I'm Thea Gibbs and I'm Director of Operations at UCL Faculty of Laws and I'm a trustee and board member of the Association of University Administrators. Over the last 20 years I've worked in three different universities in both central and departmental roles so I've experienced organisational politics and culture from both perspectives. So why am I working on issues surrounding power dynamics and navigating organisational structures? A key theme in my professional practice has been about the importance of strong working relationships between colleagues. So my work on this topic comes from that starting point. Power dynamics shape the working lives of professional services staff, their ways of working, their authority to act, with consequences for their working relationships. The structures in place have a fundamental influence on the organisational culture, but issues of power and authority are often unspoken undercurrents that affect how individuals behave towards their colleagues. Professional services staff need to be able to navigate these inherent tensions, but they also have to be alert to the assumptions and perceptions about their role based on their organisational positioning. So whether they're viewed as instruments of managerialism or having gone native if they're based in an academic department, these things can really affect how people are perceived. So the work I've done in in this area, um, I've undertaken some doctoral research which allowed me to take an impartial view of this theme. Um, because people can get quite dogmatic about uh, whether centralised or devolved structures are best. However, I found that centralisation was a neutral concept. It was the unintended consequences that got people quite so upset. So in more centralised places, it was the lack of consultation or the disempowerment and sense of not being heard and the distance between decision-making and the impact on the ground. And being able to draw together a body of evidence that showed that high-quality working relationship could mitigate the negative consequences of these organisational structures was really useful. But I also found that it doesn't work the other way around, that organisational structures can't fix poor quality relationships. The biggest challenge, I think, that we face um, in looking at power dynamics on campus, particularly involving professional services staff, is to continually guard against the assumption of an academic and a professional services staff divide, that somehow the staff groups are on different sides. And these tensions between staff can be traced back to power dynamics at play, which is why it's important that staff understand what's going on there. It's not inevitable. And in some places, it's a historical narrative and not actually a day-to-day reality. My top tip for for working on this professionally is that we do need to consciously recognise the power dynamics that are at play on campus and explicitly work to bridge any divide 
through structural and individual approaches. So structures such as co-location or business partnering models or communities of practice that bring staff together require them to have those conversations about what unites them rather than what divides them will be important. And then individually, if you're experiencing these these symptoms, is to try and build relationships based on mutual understanding of the pressures and needs of um, your colleagues to generate that trust and respect that will get you through your working day. Uh, Thea will be speaking at the AUA annual conference at the University of Manchester on the 7th to the 8th of July. You can find a link in the show notes or find out more at aua.ac.uk. And finally this week, the Office for Students has pledged to clamp down on unmerited attainment. Claire, what is OFS up to? Yes, so OFS have uh, released some updated analytics on the percentage of students attaining first and two ones, which has risen from 67% to 84% between uh, 2011 and 2021 um, and has pledged to clamp down on unmerited attainment in a wonderfully titled piece from Nick Holland, Head of Provider Standards at OFS called Degrees of Inflation. Um OFS uses an algorithm to predict grade distribution at a provider level, um, a national level as well, looking at historical performance and, and cohort demographics such as uh, gender, race and, and socioeconomic background. And, and based on that analysis, OFS has said that a large chunk of the rise in entertainment of attainment is unexplained, which of course has has then been translated into unmerited, uh, unjustified uh, and too many by various voices and and, and media outlets. Uh, The OFS has stated that any provider with unexplained growth in attainment will be investigated to ensure that their assessment is credible and that their academic uh, regulations are reliable. Um, And from my perspective, I think, you know, any steps to sort of understand what was going on here is is really positive but it dk help 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 me out here right so um you know i started reading the the actual kind of underpinning report with the methodology but um you know i was in turin so <laughs> um you know is it so you know the allegation um on social and and from various voices is that you know, when OFS says having taken into taken into account all the background factors, you know, when when you account for that, when when people do better, um, that's the unmerited or that's the unexplained bit. Is it is it there? Is it really therefore the case that um, if say I don't know, black Afro Caribbean students are doing better in their first, you know, doing better in getting firsts than they were ten years ago, all of that improvement. OFS is labelling as first, you know, a year ago, unexplained and now unmerited. Is that is that what's going on? Is that is that right? That allegation. Um, it is incredible to think about it like that, but in essence, that is uh, true. I mean, obviously, I am probably going to get an email from uh, kind of uh, various well placed sources in the OFS explaining that that's not quite strictly the case. So I should be clear this is a finely tuned and balanced algorithm and obviously wouldn't be quite that stupid but it's honestly not far off um it does look at the intake of um a provider in terms of the characteristics of the students the subjects they're studying that kind of thing and it 
works out if the uh, the distribution in 2010-11 was uh, maintained, as opposed to have it actually works out what the result would be. So on that level, yes, that is pretty much what happened. It is pretty shocking, especially if you think about, I mean, it's quite similar to what happened in A-levels. Uh, that was seen in the comments about the mutant algorithm in 2020 and 2021. I mean, the same thing happens in any system in which you gr- grade to an ideal distribution or a curve as opposed to using absolute grades. And I think that's a bit of what we're seeing here. We have been in the past okay with grading to a curve in terms of GCSE th- and A-levels. I think the public mood is turning here, to be honest. So I think this is an approach that OFS is rightly getting a bit of pushback on. Chris, what's your what, what, what's your read of it? Because, you know, I mean, obviously lots of people in the sector would say, well, look, um, we're much clearer now with students about how they can achieve the, you know, the good grades. Our teaching has improved. The support for students has improved, particularly for under underachieving groups. You know, is, is it, you know, are, 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 have we got better graduates? Uh, you know, is the moral panic here about the number of more, the number of graduates we've got? Or is it the case that, um, you know, universities have been, you know, pleasing their customers and giving them the sweeties they want? Yeah, I mean, I think you've you just touched on the point I was going to make there, which is, you know, improvements in grades. Uh, you know, what one possible explanation is that uh, it's been artificially inflated universities telling their academics to just give everyone a first uh, because it's easier or whatever. But, uh, you know, it's also possible that improvements in teaching and technology and assessment practices and quality assurance and academic skills support and well-being provision, all these things are, are having a positive impact. The other thing that, that DK hinted there is, of course, it's very reminiscent of, you know, the front page of the Daily Mail on a level Thursday uh, every year when, you know, the only possible explanation for grades going up, actually, you know, even putting last year aside, uh, there's always been a trend of, of uh, you know, grades uh, gradually improving over time. And the only possible explanation can be that exams are getting easier, you know. Well, those individuals who have succeeded um uh, you know, at a greater level than uh, than some of the press would would think they should have, and then go on to university. So it actually makes sense that some of the, uh, the if you like, grade inflation continues into higher education because these are the same individuals that have uh, overshot their expectations uh, in their further education. So, um, but I, you know, I don't think it's unreasonable. To be fair, I don't think it's unreasonable for them to look at data, look at you know large gaps in in growth in certain areas, and say, look, we need to look at this. But I think, as Claire said at the at the start, that there seems to be an assumption here that uh, you know the sector is overgrading everyone just to you know just to you know benefit ourselves and actually uh, you know if the OFS think that they're going to investigate this and find a load of universities that are, uh, are sending covert messages to, to staff saying uh, any student that gets 55 just stick an extra 10 and put marks on their grade or whatever uh, they're going to be going to be surprised that there's lots of factors contributing to this so I don't think it's unreasonable it's been it's been looked at but um, it does feel like the conclusions have been drawn uh, way ahead of um, any real investigation. Claire, obviously, you know, when OFS talks about the value of qualifications needing to be maintained over time, part of what they're talking about really is the role that, um, you know, people's grades, you know, people's results, their degree classification and so on. Part of the role that plays in signalling to people like employers in the context of getting a graduate job, um, you know, how, how good a student is. Are, you know, in, in, w- w- once people leave higher education, they start interacting with employers, for example, uh, you know, presumably degree classification Classifications are important and employers must be spitting chips that there's so many firsts flying around. 
I think I think you've hit the nail on the head there, really, Jib. Like I think there's a question at the heart, or there's a sort of core at the heart of this, which is like, if this sort of if this continues, this sort of trend continues, how would anyone possibly ever know, you know, who who the best students are? But I suppose I suppose my counter question really is, yeah, exactly what you've said. Like, who really wants to know that? And is the form of degree classification the the, the best way to do it? I think you know, increasingly employers are are more focused on skills and strengths uh, developed through education and other experiences that that indicate future potential, not not past achievement. So, is you know is degree classification the best way to demonstrate that? I would argue probably not. Uh, and how does, you know, looking to the future, how does degree classification remain relevant in a future world of of lifelong learning and, and micro-credentials? And and to be honest, is is degree classification really relevant now in a world where we are very aware of the attainment gap? Um, and, you know, conversely, which Advance HE and, and the Race Equality Charter are supporting to close? You know, it, it's obviously to Chris's point. I, th- I don't think it's unreasonable at all to look into this and try and understand what's happening here. And I think it's helpful to look back. But I also wonder if there's a bit more of an opportunity here at looking at how grading uh, and classification remain relevant, or perhaps even you know become more relevant and helpful to people outside of the sector as well to, to understand what HE delivers in relation to skills. And I'm not just talking about employers, I'm talking about the public, you know, as well. Mm. And DK, this is it, isn't it? You know, when, when Bob Burgess, all those years ago, the late Bob Burgess, um, undertook his review, one of the things he concluded was that the UK degree classification system was an important thing that was being kind of promoted and sold and, you know, to people, you know, both in the UK and around the world. But but it's, it's just becoming less and less important, isn't it? Degree classifications themselves, they have got... Um history they i mean they come out of the way it was done in oxford in the middle ages like so much in our sector uh the idea of having a first and that making somebody um a better candidate for a job than somebody who's got a 2-1 is slightly problematic uh we know about the disparity in the number of people getting first from different uh, backgrounds of different ethnicities um and it is increasingly we're starting to see a number of employers are looking at doing their own interview techniques their own aptitude tests that kind of thing for graduates and graduates just signifying a certain approach to information a certain set of skills and a certain competence that you might not get from somebody who has not been through a graduate um, experience um, it looks to me like i don't think any of the alternatives, the idea of a grade point average really has much traction at the moment. I'd be surprised to see a movement, but it is becoming less and less of a thing. And I'm interested to see the ways in which um, both universities and employers respond to the fact that we need other ways to um, discriminate in um, a positive sense between graduates um, based on their aptitudes and abilities. 
And DK, just before we uh, finish up, uh, obviously this is, um, to some extent, an annual OFS intervention, but what we haven't necessarily had is uh, a kind of crystallisation of the threat that accompanies this annual data exercise, which is where there is unexplained grade inflation at a particular provider. We might well go in, roll our sleeves up, get some clipboards, investigate and do some things. And we heard some news this week on OFS and investigations around quality. Yeah, so one of the criticisms of OFS that you hear in kind of parliamentary and DFE circles is that it talks a big game, but you don't actually really see any evidence of it actually doing anything. Um, a lot of what the Office of Students does is done behind the scenes, behind closed doors. It's a casual chat to the Vice Chancellor. It's a quiet visit. It's stuff that is happening that is not immediately publicly visible, which kind of meshes oddly if you look at the kind of things OFS and DFE say about regulation, it nearly always comes down to the idea of fines. We've had the indications, um, and there'll be a big speech in the coming week from Susan Lapworth that is going to suggest a slightly more visible, a slightly more hands-on approach to regulation. There was stuff in the, the dying days of the Skills and Post-16 Education Bill that meant that the OFS is now not actually available, um, is now not actually able to be sued for um, defamation if it talks about problems at a particular institution and the actions that it is uh, taking. So it does feel like the OFS is going to get more hands-on and we're going to hear more about it. Whether or not that drives up uh, the quality of higher education in England is yet to be seen. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Chris, Claire, DK, everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen. And until next week, stay wonky. Oh,